morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 4. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 4. We are beginning a new series of messages in 2023 that are focused on the two books written by Luke. That is the Gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. It's really written as a two-volume set where one ends, the second one begins. And it's a, it's a great narration of not just the ministry of Jesus, as we see in the Gospel according to Luke, but the very beginnings of the church, the establishment of the church. Now, there's a couple of things that we've done for this series that we kind of help you out. One is we put a retractable, a retractable map uh, on the tables uh, so some of you can, can see the, uh, the map. And then we've also done a backdrop of the map, uh, the map of Israel during first century. Uh, one of the things about that is that when you think of, a lot of times when you think about Israel, especially in the Old Testament, um, you have the you have the United Kingdom under like King David, uh, but then you have the divided kingdom with a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. But after the Babylonian exile, um, the nation of Israel no longer had a northern and a southern kingdom. So by the time we get to the New Testament period, that is the first century. Uh, Israel had three primary regions. So we don't refer to uh, the northern kingdom any longer. We don't refer to the lower or, or the southern kingdom. Instead, there's three primary regions uh, that, that show up in the New Testament um, as, as we follow Jesus on his journeys. The first is Galilee. Galilee is, the, is where Jesus spent most of his time. That's the northern part of Israel. Uh, the midsection is called Samaria. Uh, that's obviously where the Samaritans live. A lot of times it was avoided by most of the Jewish people. Uh, and then the southern part was called Judea. You'll see that it's still influenced there from uh, the southern tribe of Judah. It's where we get the word Jews. Uh, so Judah or Judea is the, is the lower section of Israel. So hopefully that, that kind of gives you some visuals uh, through this series to help you see uh, exactly where Jesus was at and how these how these cities and little towns and communities uh, relate to one another. So a little bit of uh, historical background before we jump into our passage. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians, I believe it was chapter 4, that Luke was a physician. Now Luke also traveled with the Apostle Paul on a portion of his second missionary journey as well as his third missionary journey and again he traveled with Paul on his journey back to Jerusalem and then ultimately on to Rome. So Luke's vivid descriptions of his travels and geographical details indicate that he was well-traveled and well-versed in navigation both land and water. Now not only was Luke a physician he was a well-versed traveler. He has an outstanding usage of the Greek language. His vocabulary is actually quite rich and his style of writing has kind of a classical Greek influence. In fact, when I read in just a moment, I'm gonna read an excerpt in his introduction in Luke chapter one. And you can kind of hear the, the Greek influence there, this classical Greek influence. And we also know that Luke has the distinction of being the only Gentile to write any portion of the New Testament. He is the author of the Gospel according to Luke, and as well as the book of Acts. So Luke and Acts, again, they're written as a two-volume set to the same person. They were written to uh, someone by the name of Theophilus. So let's, let's look at Luke's purpose 
in writing uh, the gospel according to Luke. We actually find it in Luke chapter 1. Uh, it's found in verses 1 through 4. In fact, as I'm reading this, I want you to think about the influence here of um, the, the classical Greek influence in how he writes. Even, you can even hear it through the, the English language. You can hear the kind of the structure and the cadence of it. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And when that's the first four verses. I, you, can, you can really kind of hear this rich language, this classical Greek influence even coming through in the English language. But here he's writing and he says very clearly in verse 4 that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. He wants Theophilus, the, the recipient of this letter, the first volume of this two-book set, he wants him to know with absolute confidence of the things that, that concern Jesus and his ministry. Well, I believe that that should be our goal too. If Luke was writing it for that, same, for that purpose, that should be our purpose. We should have that same purpose. And I want you to know with certainty about the person and the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. So we're going to begin our journey in Luke chapter 4. Jesus has been baptized by John the baptizer in, John, in the Jordan River. Uh, Jesus has been praying and fasting for 40 days. He has been tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And now he begins his ministry. And he does so in his hometown of Nazareth. So let's begin with key point number one. Key point number one is this. It was typical to find Jesus in the synagogue each Sabbath. It was typical to find Jesus in the synagogue each Sabbath. Let's pick up Luke chapter 4, verses 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now let's just pause there for a moment. This is pretty significant. I want you to notice it said, as his custom was. This was his custom. This was something that he did on a regular basis. This was part of his routine, that he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now keep in mind, the Sabbath day is distinct from the Lord's day. Sabbath is Saturday. The Jewish people traditionally worship on, uh, on the Sabbath day, the Saturday, because it was a picture of the day of rest. It was a day for, you know, for six days, the Lord created all things. And on the seventh day, he rested as a model for us and how we should live. But then we have now the New Testament, we celebrate on Sunday at the beginning of the week, the first day of the week as a picture of grace. It's also the day that Jesus was resurrected. So Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday, the Holy Spirit uh, came upon the church on a Sunday. So now we have the Sabbath on Saturday, and we have the Lord's Day, as, as it's referred to in the New Testament, as Sunday. 
But let me share with you a, a recent Gallup poll. A Gallup poll shows that in 2020, the year 2020, that only 47% of Americans belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. Only 47% of Americans belong to a church, synagogue, or a mosque. Now, how do we compare that? What does that compare to? Well, in 1999, only you know, 21, years or 21 years earlier, there were 70% of Americans that were attending church, synagogue, or a mosque. 70%. In other words, we have gone from seven, in 20 years, we've gone from 70%, the vast majority of our country, attending some type form of religious service to now only 47% of Americans belonging to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Now, if you think about that, you know, that means that even fewer of that 47% are actually attending a church. So for the very first time in America's history, if you attend church, you're in the minority. The very fact that you, if, if you're listening to this, if you're, if you're watching this, if you are in person, it makes no difference. If you are part of a local church, you are now part of the minority. 47% of Americans are, are connected in some way to a church, synagogue, or a mosque. You know, it reminds me, when, I, when, when, when Carson, our son, was growing up, we established a, at a very, very young age some non-negotiables. Now, what do I mean by non-negotiables? Non-negotiables are those things that, uh, as a family, we identify these as our core values. These are the things that we believe so deeply in. These are things that we are so committed to that they will never be up for debate. They're non-negotiables. We're not going to argue about these because they are who we are. So unless one of our core values was unless we're sick or circumstances were unavoidable, we were going to be in church together as a family. Our desire to be in church as a family was not rooted in some sort of legalistic obligation. Rather, it was a sincere desire to honor Christ in our home as a core value. We wanted to teach that to Carson, the importance of core values and the importance that that is to our family. We wanted to model integrity to our son. So all of those things were important. Now, every now and then, especially as a youth pastor, I would have a parent uh, that would come to me and say something like this. Well, you've got to pick your battles. Because I, I would be like, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while. You know, I haven't seen them at church. You know, and they would come back with that response. Well, you've got to pick your battles. And listen, I get it. That is a true statement. But you have to, you have to understand, how do you decide what battles are important? I've got two thoughts real quick. Number one, worship together as a family should never make its way to the battlefield. It should never make its way to the battlefield. If you're fighting over this as a family, then you haven't established worship as a core value. And as a result, you're already losing. So it's important that your core values are established as a family very early on so that you understand these are non-negotiables. And these are things that will never make their way to the battlefield. And then the second thought that I have is this, that if worship is not worth battling over, 
in, in your family, if you if you say, you know what, we're it, we got to pick our battles, and you know, worship's just not one of those battles that I want to, to to argue over. Then here's what I believe: you haven't established worship as a core value because you've dismissed it as something unworthy of fighting for. So it's so important that number one, you establish it as a core value and that it never make its way to the battlefield. And if it does make its way to the battlefield, you always, always, always pick your battles based upon your core values. So when a parent says, when you've got to pick your core bat battles or you've got to pick your battles, I don't disagree. But your the battles that you pick, the battles that you are going to, to go to the mattresses over, they had better be your core values. It shouldn't be over where where you're going to eat dinner. It shouldn't be over uh, you know things like that. It shouldn't be over you know little silly things. You know if you're going to go to battle, make sure that it is something uh, that is worth fighting for, and it certainly should be your core values. You know every now and then I run across an article. And I read, I read this week uh, a really short article. It was quite humorous. And rarely do I just read an article to you, but this one was quite good. And I, I wanted to share it with you. Here's what it says. Quote, the other day, a friend of mine said that a methamphetamine lab had been found in an old farmhouse in town. He then asked me a rhetorical question. Why didn't we have a drug problem when you and I were growing up? And I replied, I did have a drug problem when I was young. I was drugged to church on Sunday morning. I was drugged to church for weddings and funerals. I was drugged to family reunions and community socials, no matter the weather. I was drugged by my ears when I was disrespectful to adults. I was drugged to the woodshed when I disobeyed my parents, told a lie, brought home a bad report card, did not speak with respect, spoke ill of the teacher or the preacher, or if I didn't put forth my best effort in everything that was asked of me. I was drugged to the kitchen sink to have my mouth washed out with soap if I uttered a profanity. I was drugged out to pull the weeds in mom's garden and flower beds. I was drugged to homes of families, friends, and neighbors to help out some poor soul who had no one to mow the yard, repair the clothesline, or chop some firewood. And if my mother had ever known that I took a single dime as a tip for this kindness, she would have drugged me back to the woodshed. You know, I suppose that those drugs are still in my system. You know, I laugh when I, when I read that, but that's so important. It's so important that we understand that our core values, and if Jesus made it a core value of his, and we see this right here in, in Luke chapter four, that it was his custom. It was his, it was a core value of Jesus to make sure that he was with the people of faith a place where they were publicly reading the scriptures with one another and sharing the scriptures with one another. You might say, well, you know, the church is, you know, the, the, is uh, you know, corrupt. Or you might say, well, the established, you know, the establishment of the church. You know what? The synagogues had their problems too. And Jesus addressed those. But Jesus still understood that this was where he needed to be each Sabbath he needed to be in a place where the reading of scripture was taking place. And that's what he was doing. He was committed to that. And if Jesus was committed to being in the synagogues each Sabbath, then shouldn't a Christian be committed to attending church on Sunday? 
I hope so, and I believe so. 